I'm the assistant pastor here of church planting, and what that means is that uh, you all have called me, uh, your session's called me to go and plant a church, so uh, my wife and I and our three girls are planting a church in Amelia, but for the next uh, four weeks, including this week, so three more after this, so if you you know, hadn't planned a vacation or something this summer, good time to take one, because you have to deal with me for the next four weeks. We'll be in the book of Jonah together. Uh, Jonah's an interesting book. It's a book that we often trivialize and kind of make it a comic book of sorts. Because if, even if you're not uh, having grown up in the church, or even maybe this is the first time you've ever stepped in a church, you probably know something about Jonah. Because you've probably heard that there's a story in the Bible where a guy gets swallowed by a big fish. That's, that's the book of Jonah, right? That, that's, well, I don't even need to preach it for the next four weeks. I can just get up and tell you that and we're done. But sadly, that, that's, that's just a very, very small part of the book of Jonah. Jonah is a, a book that is, is so much more than that. It's a book about God's pursuit, his unrelenting pursuit of his purposes and of his people. And so for us, it's a book that really is a devotional in many ways. Because it's about how God continues to pursue us. Amidst our failure, amidst our rebellion. So it's a book about this prophet Jonah. It's a minor prophet. That means it's shorter. It doesn't mean it's less important. About this prophet who's called to go to Nineveh. And most of the time when we read one of the books, it's a prophetic book. The prophet is somewhat of a hero. Somebody for us to cheer on. Because he's taking the, the word of God to people and proclaiming it to them. Uh, that is not Jonah. Jonah's not a hero. Not even in the, 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 like the slightest bit of a hero. He's kind of a joke uh, to the title of prophet in many ways. He's an embarrassment. This book is written, it's written for you and I. Uh, because when we heed the call of God, when we hear, when we read it, when he begins to move in us, we often are like Jonah. We're foolish in our reactions. You know, throughout this book, there are times where we can look at Jonah and be like, what are you doing? But can we look in the mirror and ask that question of ourselves? And so if you have your Bibles, you can open them to Jonah chapter 1. We're going to look at the first 16 verses together this morning. As you open them, let me pray for our time together. Heavenly Father, we come this morning and we rejoice. You have given to us your word. We rejoice that you have given to us all that we need to know for our salvation. We rejoice that you have revealed to, you, to us in the person of Christ, your heart, your character, and your love for us. And the links that you will go to secure us as your people for yourself and your glory. And so we ask this morning that you would open our ears, our minds, and our hearts that we might hear this morning the glories of your gospel, of your grace, and of your love. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Jonah, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, and that ship threatened to break up. 
then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. And so the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps, perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. And so they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they, sailed, and they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And then they said to him, What shall we do that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. But he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. And therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. And so they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. And the men feared the Lord exceedingly. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is God's word. It's without error in any part. It's given for our good and for his glory. It's more than just a story about a man who gets swallowed by a fish. Something happens before them. What happens is, is Jonah gets a call from God. He gets a call from God and, and he decides he doesn't like it very much. There's three things that I want us to, to see this morning in this first 16 verses. First, that, that we too have a call from God. Second, that we too have rebellious hearts. And then third, we have an unrelenting God. So first, we, we see Jonah's calling in these first a few verses. It's uh, the, the word of the Lord uh, came to him. Now, this is a formula that you see throughout the Old Testament, any of the prophetic books. When, when God's calling a prophet, it says the word of the Lord, fill in the name, came to whoever it is. The, the, there's only one that really changes that. And it's Jeremiah who says the word of the Lord came to me because he writes it first person himself. But the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And it's not just that the, the word of God came to him. It's that he's also then given the word of God to take. Go and call out against this place, this city of Nineveh, this capital of your great enemy. And so he's given a purpose and a destination to go to. So are we. Right in John chapter 1 it says that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then just a few uh, verses later in verse 14, and it says what? That the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Who is this word that John's referencing? Well, it's Jesus. And so if you're here this morning and you claim faith in Christ, if you're here this morning, you've, you've placed your faith in him and, and the work of the risen Christ, then the word of God has come to you. Scripture tells us that it's written on our hearts. 
It's not just the word of God that's come to you, but the very spirit of God dwells in you. Jesus promises his disciples that, that the power of the spirit is coming and for them to wait for it. In Acts chapter 2, we get this accounting of the Holy Spirit coming upon uh, the early church. And, you know, it's the flaming tongue. There's a lot of strange things happening. Uh, they begin to understand each other, even though they don't speak the same languages in the crowd. People that are observing it, that have not received the, the Spirit, begin to say they're drunk. And Peter stands up and says, it's only the third hour of the day. They're not drunk. And some of you are like, man, you don't know my neighbor. Like, that's, that's not even that early. But he says, let me tell you what is happening. And he, and he begins to lay out for them what is happening. And what he, he tells them is happening is that it's a fulfillment of prophecy from Joel chapter 2. That, that says that in the last days it shall be that God will pour out his spirit on all flesh. And that your sons and daughters will be prophets. And your young men and your old men will see visions. And it ends and says and that we will all have the spirit of prophecy. So Peter explains this phenomenon of the power of the spirit that we are all in this age of the Spirit, prophets. Because the Word of God has come to us and the power of the Spirit rests on us. And we've been given a message, right? Matthew 28, the Great Commission. All, all authority has been given to Christ and he says, therefore go and baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and do what? And to teach them all that you've been taught. And so we, we too, like Jonah, have a prophetic calling. We've been called, we've been given a destination, right? The ends of the world. That's the part of, of, of the story of Acts that we're in. They, they first went to Jerusalem and they went out to Samaria, the county of the province, and it says to the ends of the world. And we're the ends of the world and we're going to continue to go proclaiming the message of the gospel, the truth of God's word. So we have a clear calling just as Jonah's son of Amittai. Secondly, we see Jonah's rebellious heart and in it, I think we see our own rebellious hearts. It's, the word of God comes to him and it, he's told to rise and go to Nineveh. And if you're a slow reader, the first couple of, of words of verse 3, you're like, all right, Jonah, you're going to do it. But then as you read on, you realize he rises to not go to Nineveh, but he rises to flee. It's this first major tension in the book of Jonah. Most scholars and commentators call Jonah the reluctant prophet. I think that's taking it easy on Jonah. Well, we're used to reluctant prophets, right? I mean, Moses in Exodus 4, from a burning bush, God calls him and tells him, Moses, at the age of 80, I'm going to send you back to Egypt, to Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, and you're going to tell him to let my people go, and then you're going to lead them out of Egypt. And, and does Moses just turn around and be like, all right, I'm going to go do it. Now, what does he do? He, he, he does what Moses does, which is he goes, Lord, we've got a problem. I've got a stutter. He begins to come up with excuses because he's reluctant to go. And God says to Moses, I own that mouth, Moses. And Moses goes. And we, we could look at the other prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and all of these others that, that have this calling upon them and see a reluctance to go, a fear, a hesitation. We're used to reluctant prophets. This is not a reluctant prophet. This is a rebellious prophet. He, he flees 
before the presence of God, it says. And in his fleeing, we, we, we can see a few things. One, it's an immediate thing. The, the, the very next thing he does is rise and leave for Tarshish. He doesn't seek counsel. He doesn't go talk to any of the other elders looking for wisdom on what to do. He's like, I ain't doing it. I'm going to go to Tarshish. Now, I understand why he might want to go to Tarshish. We, we don't know exactly where Tarshish is, but we do know it's on the southern coast of Spain. Have you ever been there? It's this beautiful place, wonderful beaches, great climate, seafood, people are nice. I mean, I would, I would want to go there over Nineveh as well which is somewhere in, in, in modern Iraq. Like, desert, people might want to kill me, holiday in the sun. It's not hard to choose. I, I, I see why I wanted to go there, but not only that, it tells us in Isaiah 66 that Tarshish was a place that the glory of God had not yet been made known. And so he's immediately fleeing to this, this place of Tarshish, but he's fleeing to a place that he knows needs to have the word of God proclaimed. He gets up to flee to a place that he knows needs a prophet. He, he's saying to the Lord, I, I will do your work. I, 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 will, I will go and proclaim. I'm just not going to do it where you want me to do it. I'm not going to do it to the people you want me to do it to. I'll go do it over here. But I'm not going to do it over there. Man, that doesn't sound like me. That doesn't sound like us. Right, God calls you to serve in a certain ministry and you're like, that's too hard. That's too risky. I feel safe and secure over here. You want me to work with teenagers? Not a chance in the world. Have you smelled a middle school boy when they? I mean, before you tell them to shower after like the week of camp, it gets rank up in that cabin. And I love it because I don't like showering either, so we just live in it together. <laughs> but for some of you, that, that's intimidating. You're like, I can't serve there. You might, I'll go serve over here. I love holding babies, right? Everybody loves to hold a cute baby. Maybe he's calling you to share your, your faith with, with a certain neighbor or, or coworker, and you're like, that's too risky. Maybe he's calling you to serve among a certain group of people. And you're like, Lord, you don't know what that's going to do to my reputation. I, I can't be seen associating with them. I can't be seen associating with them. You know what happens when you hang around with people from Amelia too long? People start thinking you're a redneck. <laughs> Thankfully, I already am. But he's going somewhere that needs the glory of God proclaimed. But it's somewhere that's a lot easier than Nineveh. Second, he goes through this very methodical and deliberate to accomplish it. He, he goes to Joppa. That's the port city. There's going to be ships going places. He seeks out one that has room for them. And, and, he, and he says to them, hey, will you take me? And they're like, well, it's going to cost you something. It's like, good news. I won the mega millions. What do you need? And they, they, they say, sure, we'll take you. He, he books a ticket for what's going to turn out to be the worst cruise of their lives. He's deliberate in his actions. And you're thinking, man, who would do this? Who, who would expend their time and their energy and their money running from God? Man, I hope you didn't look in the mirror this morning. Because we run from him and we hide from him out of shame and guilt, out of fear and reluctance, probably every day of our lives. And we know it won't work. Right? The psalmist declares years, centuries before this, 
Where can I flee from your presence? If I take up the wings of the morning and go to the outermost part of the sea, even there your hand will hold me. Even there your right hand will lead me. You cannot outrun the presence of God. He's fleeing something that he can't get away from. We often do this. We expend ourselves hiding from his presence. We stop coming to church because we're full of guilt and shame. We don't want to have to deal with it. We avoid those people who might speak truth into our lives. We run from his presence. And yet it's always there. And sometimes we hide in plain sight. I have a college roommate that when we graduated stayed on a staff with Campus Crusade for Christ, now called Crew, because that's hipper and cooler. And um, he killed it. He was awesome at his job. A couple years into it, he realized, mm, parachurch ministry isn't my thing. I, I want to go to seminary. And so I'd been at at, a, at Covenant for six months and my, my college roommate shows up. So we were college roommates and then we were seminary classmates. And then I moved to Florida and I thought, man, I've finally shaken this guy. And then lo and behold, he took a, a job at the University of Florida as the RUF campus minister. It's a campus that's extremely difficult. Uh, you know, they consider themselves a public Ivy and they're top 10 public university and all these things and incredibly diverse, large school. And it's a place that RUF had struggled. Either people got burnout trying or they just hunkered down and dealt with the kids that were just students that were right in front of them. They never had a, a real influence on the campus. For some reason, he shows up and like, the Lord just starts working. Kids are coming out of the, the woodwork seeking hope and peace and clarity in life. Professors are asking to meet with him. The, the university president's calling to meet with him. I'm like, what are you doing? Who are you? Three years of this. And one day in a conversation, he just said, I don't really think I'm doing what God's calling me to be doing. I was like, what are you talking about? We only lived an hour away, so I drove up to have dinner with him, and, and I got to hear him pretty much just like walk through how he was using campus ministry, ministry as a whole to hide. Because he was gifted, incredibly gifted. But he wasn't where God was calling him in his opinion, but the affirmations of of those that were observing things from the outside, fueled his heart, comforted him, satiated his longings for love just enough. And he finally grew to the end of that, that got to the end of the rope and was like, I can't do it anymore. Six months later, he was out of vocational ministry. His family had moved, his wife had taken a job and he had become a project manager for a big commercial developer. You talk to him today and there's a peace and a joy in his voice that I never heard in the years he was in ministry. Sure, there was times of excitement by what God was doing, but there's never peace. There was never joy. Today there is. He was hiding in plain sight. He was using ministry as a place to hide from the presence of God. It's crazy. And it finally caught up with him. Look, the call that we we get isn't always a call to some crazy foreign land. Sometimes it's just a call to, to be a, a witness and a prophet in our everyday lives. To be a good husband or wife, to be a good father or mother, to, to, to be a good bricklayer or stockbroker. To serve in the place that God has put us. As a faithful witness. But often instead of doing those things, we hold out out of fear of what might happen, what those people will think of me, 
I don't want to lose my friends. Whatever it might be. We stay where we're comfortable. And say we'll serve, but we'll serve like this. That's what Jonah's doing. What he's saying is, God, I don't trust what you're calling me to. I'm going to do it my way, not yours. Third, you'll notice in verses 4 to 16, the unrelenting pursuit of God. We have this prophetic calling. We, we, we have a rebellious heart, but we have a God who is unrelenting in his pursuit of his people and his purposes. To put it in the words of Vince Vaughn, he is a stage five clinger. You can't get rid of him. You can't shake him. Jonah is, is, is off his rocker. I mean, he, he's even told this, the, the, these ship, these mariners, that that's what he's doing. He's fleeing from the presence of God. He gets on this boat and, and God uh, says, nah. And he throws a storm into his life. He throws a storm that, that, that's, that's crazy, right? I mean, they're, they're fearful enough that the ship's going to break apart. This happens in, in our own lives. And God throws a storm in our lives. And we think, man, what, God, God's angry with me. God's mad at me. No, God is pursuing you. He's trying to shake you up so that you run to the only place where you will find love and fulfillment that's never ending. That's everlasting. And he does this. He says, you're not going to get away. And so he, he throws this storm and, and he will literally, out of his love, take you to the brink of death in order to rescue you and bring you to himself. And at times he'll take it even further to bring you home. He's unrelenting in his pursuit. Second, from verses 5 to 16, we, we see that he uh, not only hurls this storm at Jonah, but he begins to humiliate Jonah. He, he begins to humiliate him uh, in front of these pagans. You know, he didn't want to go to, to Nineveh, so he's put on a boat with a bunch of Phoenicians, most likely. Those were the sailor guys of the day. So they're not Assyrians. They're, they're, not, they're not from Nineveh, but they themselves are not Hebrews. They, they don't know the true and, and living God. But he, he does put these people there and, and begins to humiliate them. I mean, we see this as the storm gets bad and they're afraid... What do they do? They cry out to their gods. What has Jonah yet to do since verse 1? Cry out to his God. So here you got these Phoenicians whose gods are, are powerless and can do nothing. And they're crying out to them and Jonah's yet to cry out to his. He's yet to pray to his. And any of these decisions he's made, he has yet to talk to God. So they're praying to them. And there's Jonah asleep in the inner part of the ship. I mean, he's shaming Jonah. He's humiliating him. Has this ever happened to you? Happens to me. Usually starts with the doorbell that rings at our house. When I open it, there's either two uh, young men in short sleeve white shirts, black slacks, with bike helmets on, or a group of people that want to hand me the latest copy of the guidepost. And, and then they ring my doorbell and then they want to share with me their faith. And after I beat them up a little bit with the Bible and send them on their way, I, 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 I literally at times think to myself, when was the last time I had that kind of love for my neighbors? When was the last time I had that kind of zeal for the mission of God that I would ring someone's doorbell to share my faith with them? Total stranger. Haven't done it since I was in high school and I was forced to do it by our youth group. The 
pagans are shaming us. Keeps going. It's not just that, that they're praying to him, that, that they, did, they get out of fear to hurl their cargo over into the sea to lighten the load. And then it says, what? They encourage him to go and pray. They go wake him up and say, we've all prayed. It hasn't done anything. You're the only one that hasn't prayed. Wake up and pray. I mean, they're forcing the guy who knows the one true and living God to pray that they might not all die. Jonah's thinking, I might, maybe I want to die because I don't want to go do what I'm being called to do. So I'm, I'm okay with this. And so they then begin to seek the Lord's will. They're going to cast lots. We know from Proverbs 16 that the, the man casts the lots, but that every decision is from the Lord. And so they cast lots seeking what in the world is going on. On whose account, who on this boat has done something that needs to be righted so that we don't die. And the lot falls to, you guessed it, to Jonah. And so then they begin to force Jonah into giving his testimony. Right, when the lot falls to Jonah, they say to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. And before he could begin to tell them, they begin to pepper him with questions. What is your occupation? Where are you from? What is your country? Who are your people? And what happens is he begins to unfold for them his testimony. He begins to witness to them. He didn't want to go and proclaim the truth of God and the word of God to Nineveh, but now he's going to be forced to do it on this ship among these sailors. And he says what? I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And in hearing that, the men were exceedingly afraid, it says in verse 10. This guy believes in the God who created this. This is this, is this guy's God's storm. It is on his account. It is his fault. And they are afraid. Because if your God created these things and your God is doing this, what is going to stop him? And so they ask that question. What do we, do? What do we need to do? And he tells them what, what they've got to do. You've got to throw me into the sea. Now what's beautiful about that is Jonah's honest. He knows what will get it done. But their reaction is, we're not going to do that. We're not, we're not sentencing you to death. Because if you throw somebody over the sea and you're out, out at sea and, you know, I'm not sure how great their life preservers were, but I'm going to assume they weren't very good. Jonah's not going to make it. And so what do they try to do? To save themselves, they, they row harder or dig in deeper with the oars to make it back to shore. Well, just like they're praying to their, their non-existent gods didn't work, their effort doesn't work either. They, they don't find salvation in, in rowing harder. And they finally succumb. They finally succumb and they throw Jonah overboard. They throw him overboard. And then they say, they feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. What did they do? They changed their religion. These godless Phoenicians 
move from, from praying to non-existent gods to offering sacrifices to the one true and living God. Because God continues to pursue. He continues to pursue. This storm is because God loves Jonah. And he wasn't going to let Jonah get away. But he also loved those Phoenicians. And he loves those in Nineveh. He, he will pursue his purposes and his people unrelentingly. And so he forces out of Jonah a testimony and a witness that those sailors might come to believe in him. This rebellious prophet in his rebellion leads these men to salvation. What does God do for that rebellious heart of ours? We know what he did for Jonah. And Jonah was born in a city called Gathifer, 2 Kings tells us. Just west of the Sea of Galilee. A little town that's three miles north of Nazareth. In that little town, three miles south of where Jonah grew up, there was another little boy who grew up. Who grew up as a carpenter. And who had a calling far greater than any we have. Far more divine. A call that, that would, he would lay down his life for rebellious hearts, for rebellious people. And time and time again, he would expend himself and go through great lengths to show his love to his disciples and to the world. He would say things like, I've come not to do my will, but my father's. See, Jonah is an antitype. And Jesus is the prototype. Jonah doesn't want to proclaim the gospel to those evil and wicked Ninevites. Jesus came and laid down his life for evil and wicked people like you and me. That's the unrelenting pursuit and love of God. Where Jonah wouldn't go, Jesus did go. We're told in Hebrews that he, is, he isn't ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. Jesus felt the pain of his call, but he never was reluctant. He never was rebellious. He went freely out of love for those who would kill him. That he might save those who would kill him. It's the unrelenting pursuit of God. It's the unrelenting love of God. We're called by that grace. We're called by that love. Will you answer? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come this morning and we rejoice at your unrelenting love, at your unrelenting grace, that you pursue us even as we flee, that you chase us, you wear us down, that you bring us back to yourself that we might be fed, comforted, you might bring us peace and hope and joy, even in the midst of sorrow and suffering and sin. We rejoice that Christ would lay down his life for us. And we rejoice this morning in the hope of the resurrection. That three days in the grave and he rose again. Pray all this in his name. Amen.